Every life is a story. Some are bestsellers. I'm Chuck. I'm Karen. And this is Spy Stories. Karen, who am I going to learn about today? Well, today we're going to learn about the very fierce Nancy Wake. She was a spy, and this is her story. She was born Nancy Grace Augusta Wake in Wellington, New Zealand in 1912. She was the youngest of six children born to Augustus, better known as Charles, and Ella Wake. It is said that when she was born, the Maori midwife who helped deliver her pointed to the thin veil of skin covering the top of her head and declared, This is what we call a kahu. And the midwife softly traced her finger across the fold. And it means your baby will always be lucky. Wherever she goes, whatever she does, the gods will look after her. When Nancy was two, her family moved to Sydney, where her father worked as a journalist and her mother took care of the family. But shortly after the move, her father abandoned the family, even going so far as to sell the house from beneath them, leaving them all to struggle financially. This is something that Nancy never forgot, and it drove her desire to be the best that she could be. See, I think that it must be a family trait, because... Here's a little fun fact. I think that I am actually a distant relative to Nancy Wake. My maiden... Of of course you do. Of course (laughs) you do. My maiden surname is Wake. And when I've researched way back, there was one clan that separated into three different areas. And I'm, I'm sure I'm related to her in some way. So I'm going to go ahead and claim her. And just like Nancy... My dad left my family when I was age two, so it must just be a thing. That's what I've decided. This is Ken we're talking about, right. this family tale. Yeah, okay. there you go. Okay. <laughs> anyway, Nancy left home when she was 16, and she became a nurse. After her aunt died and left her a small inheritance, she went to London, where she mixed her very limited knowledge of her father's trade with a few colorful lies and procured herself a position as a journalist. This job suited her quite well, and she rose quickly within the ranks and eventually became a European correspondent for Hearst News. And back in the 1920s and 1930s, Hearst owned the biggest media conglomerate in the world. And that was a number of newspapers and magazines in all the major cities. And he began acquiring radio stations to complement his papers. So he was basically the biggest media mogul of his time. Right. So working for him with no journalistic background or education was a pretty big deal. Because her job was to observe, she really saw the evil arising around her as the Nazis began the climb to power, and she noticed it when many others were too busy with their lives to really pay attention. Nancy witnessed groups of Nazis randomly beating Jewish citizens. She even saw Nazi party members chain Jewish men and women to wheels, whipping them as the wheels moved through the city. Although Nancy could see the atrocities happening around her, She continued her job to the best of her ability, even interviewing Hitler himself in 1933. Yeah, if you look this up, in 1933, her newspaper beat took her to Vienna to do a story on this new German chancellor 
some guy named Adolf Hitler, who was not really known worldwide yet. So she headed out to see what the big deal was, and she interviewed him and basically just got the official party line. But this is in 1933, and some very important things happened in 1933. The Nazis, obviously led by Hitler, began to put into practice their racial ideology. Now, the Nazis believed that the Germans were racially superior and that there was a struggle for survival between them and the inferior races. They saw Jews, Roma, the gypsies, and the handicapped as serious biological threats to the purity of the, air quote, German race, and that was the Aryan race, what they considered the master race. Ugh. All that's just so icky. Ugh. Ugh. It is. Well, in 33, new German laws forced Jews out of their civil service jobs, university and law positions, and any areas of public life. Then in 33, you also had proclaimed at Nuremberg the Nuremberg Laws, and this made Jews second-class citizens. And we'll link some information to these Nuremberg Laws. But they defined Jews not by their religion or how they wanted to identify themselves, but by the religious affiliation of their grandparents. Now, this is kind of important when you think of Germany in 1933. Jews only numbered about 525,000 in Germany. That was less than 1% of the total population. Wow. Wow. Yeah, there's a lot to be learned from that. Mm -hmm. But they were the principal target of Nazi hatred. And the Nazis identified the Jews as a race and defined this race as inferior. And they spewed a lot of hate-mongering propaganda that unfairly blamed the Jews for Germany's economic depression and the country's defeat in the First World War. Hmm. And you have to remember, in 1933, Germany's economic situation was terrible. Right. You know, so you know how people would come when... When they become desperate, they want to point a finger. Right. They want to blame everyone but themselves. Mm -hmm. Right. Even though the Jewish population was less than 1%. It's just crazy. They took the blame. Well, despite the dark cloud encompassing her community, Nancy did end up finding a ray of light because she deeply fell in love with a French businessman named Henri Edmond Fioca. She was known for enjoying the company of Frenchmen. She thought that they were very romantic and... Um, When it came to Henri, she actually said that she fell in love with him because he could do such a wonderful tango. (laughs) So the two married in 1939, and they settled into a life of marital bliss. Six months into the marriage, German tanks invaded their area, and it was clear that trouble was on the horizon. Now, Nancy's time as a correspondent clued her into just how horrible things could get. And she vowed to do something about it. So she joined the French resistance movement. Okay, I'm going to prattle on here for just a minute about the resistance movement, if you don't mind, Karen. Please do. Please do. Well, Germany defeated France in less than six weeks. And they allowed the French to set up a government known as the Vichy government. And many Frenchmen refused to capitulate to Germany. I love the word capitulate. Can you just say it again? Capitulate. Such a great word. Okay. Carry on. Now, one was Charles de Gaulle, and he had fled to London. He was really not known well at that time. But from London, he gave this very famous speech rallying the French to resist. And this is what he said. 
is the last word said, has all hope gone? Is the defeat definitive? No, believe me, I tell you that nothing is lost for France. The war is not limited to the unfortunate territory of our country. This war is a world war. I invite all French officers and soldiers who are in Britain or who may find themselves there with their arms or without to get in touch with me. Whatever happens, the flame of French resistance must not die and will not die. Now, de Gaulle was headquartered in Great Britain and the French resistance was aided and financed by the British. Now, the French resistance fighters, they blew up bridges, they derailed trains, they directed the British in the bombing of German troop trains. You know what that they sounds kid- like? Chuck, do you, do, you, do you know what it sounds like that they were doing? It sounds like a lot to? of sabotage. 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 They kidnapped and killed German o- army officers. They ambushed German troops. They took no prisoners, but rather they killed any German soldier who surrendered to them. And sometimes they mutilated their bodies for good measure. The Nazis referred to them as terrorists. And wow. here's the thing you have to remember about them. They were considered non-combatants who did not have the rights of prisoners of, of war if they were captured. Oh, wow. Did not realize yeah. that. Hmm. At first, this resistance was not really organized. It really consisted of individual acts of sabotage. Sabotage. Ordinary French citizens cut telephone lines so the communications would be interrupted and this resulted in German soldiers being killed because they had not received warning of bombing raids by the British Royal Air Force. Now the Germans fought back by announcing that hostages would be shot if any more acts of resistance were carried out. Now even though they started out as unorganized, slowly organizations began to form. And many, many women were active in this resistance. Including Nancy. Including Nancy. Well, Nancy's first job in the underground was courier. She would smuggle food and documents to fellow members of the resistance. She also used her husband's wealth and privilege to aid the community. I said he was a businessman, but he was like a millionaire. He was an incredibly well-known and well-connected businessman. While the Nazis restricted many of the citizens' movements in and out of the area, she was still free to move about, so she took full advantage of the opportunity afforded her, and she even bought an ambulance, which she used to smuggle refugees out of France. Nancy also became part of Captain Ian Garrow's escape network. Well, let's talk a little bit about this escape network, Karen. Okay. Garrow was a British officer who became separated from the army during the fall of France in 1940. He managed to evade the Germans and Vichy authorities as he crossed the country. There, he found shelter in a seaman's mission before heading towards the Pyrenees to escape to neutral Spain. On the way to the mountains, Garrow changed his mind. He turned around and there created the Pat Line, named after Pat O'Leary, who started it. Now think of this in terms of the Underground Railroad. All right. Okay. It had safe houses. It was a route that had safe houses and shelters and everything else and a lot of people aiding. The Pat Route would eventually become one of the most important escape networks of the war. 
smuggling many Allied servicemen out of France across the Pyrenees. Garo himself was arrested by Vichy authorities in October of 41. Just over a year later, as the Germans moved into France, it became clear that prisoners like him would be in great danger. Members of his network broke him out of jail and got him out of the country using the Pat line. Okay. He returned to Britain, became part of MI9, the Secret Service tasked with supporting escape and evasion. That's very cool. Did not know all that. Yeah, it's, it's a very important part of what the resistance did. Not right. only did they fight the Germans and sabotage, sabotage where they could, but they got people out of the country. Which was just really vital. Right, because you have to remember the, the Vichy government there mm-hmm. turned over all French Jews to Germany. Mm, so wow. that was one of the reasons they needed this. Well, from 1940 to 1943, Nancy worked without ceasing. I mean, she was just constantly going at it to help as many people as she could. During this time, she helped well over a thousand escape. But all these efforts came at a cost. The Gestapo became aware of what she was doing, and this made her work incredibly difficult. It did not stop her, however. They surveilled her nearly all the time. They put a tap on her phone. They intercepted and read her mail. But none of this stopped her or even slowed her down. Nancy just adapted. She became a master of false identities and sabotage. 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 She became so good at evasion that she earned the nickname the White Mouse. As the British-American invasion, Operation Torch began, Unified Armed Forces of Nazi Germany conquered southern parts of France in November 1942. With this, the Nazis got free access to the documents of the Vichy regime that put Wake's life in great danger. I mean, even greater danger than it had been, and she had been in pretty grave danger up to this point. Although she found herself with some very close calls, she always managed to elude those looking for her. I mean, after all, she was the White Mouse. This infuriated the Gestapo, and by the end of 1943... Chuck, they actually named her their number one most wanted person. We're talking about the Gestapo. Yeah, to be on the Gestapo's most wanted list is pretty impressive. Yeah, yeah, I would say. Although her husband loved her desperately, he told her that she must leave France and never return because her safety meant more to him than anything else. So she kissed him goodbye and she left. The pressure to catch her was so intense that it actually took six tries to get her out of France, but she finally succeeded. Her husband, Henri, stayed behind and the Gestapo ended up capturing, interrogating, and ultimately executing him. But Nancy did not find out about this until after the war. She moved to Spain right after crossing the Pyrenees Mountains And then she finally reached England, where she began working in the French section of the Special Operations Executive, known as the SOE. After a period of training, Nancy returned to France in April 1944 to help organize the resistance before D-Day. Under the alias of Madame André, she was given the responsibility of taking care of finances, the allocation of weapons, and all the equipment that was brought in through parachute, and she had to ensure good radio communications. When she was only 31, she was among 39 women and 430 men who parachuted into France to help with preparations for D-Day. 
One account of a parachuting incident tells of how Nancy found herself all tangled up in a tree, and when the head of the local resistance unit pulled her down, he said, I hope all the trees in France bear such beautiful fruit. To which she replied, Oh, don't give me that French shit. This was typical of Nancy's style. She was flirtatious when needed and tough when it counted. It was yeah. this. Think that through, though. I would think that whole thing through. Uh-huh. Paratroopers, think how much training paratroopers get before they parachute into a country. Right. How much training do you think she got? They probably just told her, count to 10 and pull the cord. Well, apparently she had six months of training, but that included that training and hand-to-hand combat and things like that. So she had a little bit of training. I wonder if Christine Granville was parachuted in as part of this same group. Kind of makes you wonder, like, if they all hung out together. Because, I mean, there were only 39 women, so. But anyway, it was Nancy's brave and cavalier manner that defined her reputation for the rest of her career. While she was in France, she collected all the night parachute drops, and she would hide them in storage caches for the advancing Allied armies, and she continued to set up wireless communications with England. She continued to create opportunities for sabotage. 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 And she kept harassing the enemy, and sometimes more than just harassing them. At one point, by her own admission, she karate chopped a Nazi causing him to die. This is what she said about it. (laughs) They taught us to do this judo chop stuff with the flat of the hand at the SOE, so I would practice and practice at it, but this was the only time I actually got to use it. Whack! And it killed him, all right. I was really surprised. (laughs) (laughs) I just karate chopped him in the foot. (laughs) She's like, I'm just going to go ahead and try this. Oh, check it out. It worked. Yeah, well, she was actually captured by this guy. She would have been captured by this guy. Yeah. like, what do I got to lose? (laughs) She gave him the punch to the throat that so many people talk about. Yeah, the throat punch. And then she's just like, oh, that that works. Cool. That works. So 72 hours later, and think about the fear it probably took when she did that, you know. 72 hours later, Nancy rode 380 miles. 380 miles, Chuck. On a bicycle through German checkpoints to transfer a message to her resistance group. Right. And she was the number one. She right. was at the top of the Gestapo's most wanted list. Right. Right. I mean, apparently when she finally got where she was going and they asked her questions, all she could do was just cry. She just cried and cried because of all the stress of it. But she never made any bones about the fact that she used her feminine charms to get through these checkpoints. She herself would say that she would give them a wink and a playful smile, pose a little, and boldly ask, so, are you going to check me or what? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and <laughs> we, will, we will post pictures. She was a spectacularly beautiful woman. Right, but just her, you know, putting yeah. it out so there like that made them. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? <laughs> and so they just, they were like, oh, no, you know, you're fine. And feel all uncomfortable and stuff. During this time, Nancy said she was never afraid because she never had time to be afraid. Her fellow resistance officer described her this way. She's the most feminine woman I know. Until the fighting starts. Then she's like five men. Nancy described herself with, I was not a very nice person. And it didn't put me off my breakfast. (laughs) 
She was not taken aback by all of this. Right. She did what she had to do. She's a very pragmatic woman. No sector gave the Reich more cause for fury than Nancy's. Hers was the fortress of France. Methodically, the SS laid its plans and prepared to obliterate the group, whose stronghold was the plateau above town. Troops were massed in towns all around the plateau with artillery, mortars, aircraft, and mobile guns. In June 1944, 22,000 SS troops made their move. Through bitter battle and then escape, Nancy and her little army had cause to be satisfied. 1,400 German troops lay dead on the plateau, a hundred of their own men. Well, wow, that's a 14 to 1 ratio. That's, yeah. Pretty, yeah. that's pretty impressive. That's- and this is after D-Day, and within a year, Germany was defeated. And 375 of the 469 SOE operatives in the French section survived the war. 12 of the 39 women operatives were killed by the Germans, and three who returned had survived imprisonment and torture at Ravensbrück concentration camp. A total of 600,000 French people were killed during World War II. 240,000 of them imprisoned in concentration camps. You don't really think about that. You know, I haven't read and heard a lot about the French resistance in World War II. So this was a really fascinating thing for me. It's one really that that warrants its own episode. I agree. You know, a three-part episode because it's something I would encourage everybody to look up and read about it because these were just fierce, brave people. Right. right. I knew a little bit, but not, not as much. And, and it's been a joy to, um, to research it and to learn more for sure. Well, after the war, Britain awarded Wake the George Medal. The United States gave her the Medal of Freedom and France honored her with three different awards. I'm not naming them all because I will slaughter the names of them. But the shine of all that glory faded when the Germans were routed from France and she returned to Marseille and discovered their heartbreaking truth about her beloved Henri. Knowing he had died, refusing to give her whereabouts despite days of interrogation and torture, both infused her with a great love and appreciation, but also a deep, deep sadness. And it was a sadness that haunted her for the remainder of her life. As a small measure of comfort, she was reunited with Picon, the wire-haired terrier she'd adopted when she'd first arrived in Paris. That's kind of a little miraculous gift for her. Yeah, she found her dog again. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of amazing. And it's amazing how after something like that, and after finding that you've lost your husband, just to have this little vestige of the life that you had together, just that little bit of comfort, what that must have meant to her, you know? Yeah, sure. Well, Nancy continued to work with the SOE after the war, working at the British Air Ministry in the Intelligence Department. In 1960, she married a former prisoner of war, Englishman John Forward, and the stories I've read of him actually compare him to Jimmy Stewart, that the characters that Jimmy Stewart played oh, really? were very much the personality of John Forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I guess you would have to have, you would have to have a pretty unassuming personality i think too i think her first husband was very debonair and very um kind of swept her off her feet but i think this man felt safe to her 
and just she just wanted someone she could just be friends with after everything she'd gone through. So they, the two of them returned to Australia to live. Surprisingly, she was never awarded a medal by the Australian government. When the Australian Returned Services League recommended that Wake be awarded a medal, they were turned down. The Sydney Morning Herald um, from 2000 guessed that she was turned down for a medal because she was born in New Zealand and was considered a New Zealand citizen. After much hullabaloo, and not until 2004, Wake was, at long last, awarded the Companion of the Order of Australia. Then, in 2006, Nancy received the New Zealand Returned Services Association's highest honor, the RSA badge in gold as well as life membership for her work with the French resistance during the war. Again, this was in 2006. Yeah, she was not so impressed that she had to wait so long for the Australian award. No, no, she was not. <laughs> she was not. Nancy's story was so amazing that as information about her got out there, there were a lot of opportunities for books and movies. There was even a television series based on her life that aired in the 1980s. Nancy usually condoned the works, but didn't like it when the dramatized stories would invent romances or affairs that didn't exist. She said about this, What do you think my bosses in England would have thought? All those thousands of pounds to train me and for me to just go and have an affair. Really? And in her last interview, when asked about any possible affairs, she replied, No. And in my old age, I regret it. But you see, <laughs> if I had accommodated one man, the word would have spread around and I would have had to accommodate the whole damn lot. <laughs> so <laughs> She had a good way of thinking there. She did. She also called out a scene from the miniseries that depicted her as making breakfast for the men in the parachute group. Nancy stated quite emphatically, the miniseries was well acted, but in parts it was extremely stupid. At one stage, they had me cooking eggs and bacon to feed the men. For goodness sake, did the Allies parachute me into France to fry eggs and bacon for the men? There wasn't an egg to be had for love nor money, and even if there had been, why would I be frying it when I had men to do that sort of thing? <laughs> so, she was very practical. Nancy tried a few times to find a place in Australian politics, but it never really panned out. When her husband passed away in 1997, she started planning the move back to England and found her way back there in 2004. After making the final move back to England, Wake became a resident at the Stafford Hotel, which had been a British and American forces club during the war. Way back early in her life, she had stayed at the Stafford. And... Nancy had actually ordered her first what she called bloody good drink there in 1946, and she liked it so much that she was known to drink the other men under the table. Yeah, so. her her ability to drink was legendary. <laughs> right, right. When you read the stories about her, that's one thing that they always mention is that she, she could outdrink any man. Right, she could hold her liquor, yeah. The hotel's owners welcomed her warmly, absorbing most of the costs of her life because um, the life that she led and everything that had happened, especially her husband's death, had taken a toll on her finances. And costs were also helped occasionally by anonymous donors. One of those donors is actually rumored to be the Prince of Wales. All through her 80s and 90s, 
Nancy could be found on a leather stool in the hotel bar most mornings. Talking about she's in her 80s or 90s. Yeah, there's pictures. We have pictures of that, too. Yeah. And she'd be sitting there nursing the first of the day's few gin and tonics. After having her 90th birthday at the Stafford, they began to plan her 100th. But unfortunately, that party didn't happen. Nancy Wake left this world at the ripe old age of 98. Before she died, she was asked what she wanted done, and she said, I want to be cremated, and I want my ashes to be scattered over the mountains where I fought with the resistance. That will be good enough for me. And that is exactly what was done. Nancy Wake's legacy did not live on through biological children, but through the thousands of people she saved during her French resistance years and war efforts. Nancy was something words can hardly describe. She was pragmatic and a bit decadent, self-aware but still romantic, fun-loving and fired up when necessary. And when the going got tough, she just got tougher. Her father, whom she was said to adore with her whole heart, he abandoning her could have written a tragic story of a broken victim, but Nancy took that pain, and she wrote her own story, making herself the heroine of her own life. She was a hero, and she was a spy. You can find spy stories on all the main podcasting platforms. If you like the show, please take the time to leave us a review on iTunes. You can find our discussion group on Facebook at Spy Stories Group, and you can follow us on Twitter at Spy Stories Pod. Nancy Wake saw atrocities happening around her and dedicated her life to fighting them. She lost many things. She lost her wealth. She lost her husband. But she gained a life well lived. Nancy's life reminds us, just as Harriet the Spy says, life is a struggle. A good spy gets in there and fights. And until next time, keep fighting.